0: visit ElkinsConsulting.com and schedule a one-time 90-minute finder session. Well, I am so honored today to be interviewing Terry Roach from the band The Roaches um, from the 70s and 80s and now doing other kinds of music. My friend Jeff Furman introduced us and I'm so grateful. Terry, thank you so much for joining me on Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Well.
1: Yes. Well, thanks for inviting me, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, um, it was so fun interviewing Jeff and hearing about his musical connections, because that wasn't the the main theme of our conversation. It was about um, uh, being a child of Holocaust survivors. But because there was the musical connection, he jumped right in because he knows that I'm also a musician and just felt compelled to introduce me to you. And I'm so glad he did.
1: Well, you know, it, it was very interesting for me to hear your interview with Jeff, because, you know, I know Jeff from years ago, I think he may have either written a story about the roaches or interviewed us or something. You know, And so over the years, we connect like on Facebook and stuff. And I've always thought of Jeff as a music writer, you know, for, and he mentioned in your podcast that he wrote for the Bergen record, which is uh, we grew up in Bergen County in New Jersey. So I, I thought nobody's ever heard of that newspaper, you know, but, and it wasn't until I uh, heard your podcast, your interview with Jeff, did I realized that he, what he did for a living. Isn't was, that funny? It was fascinating. You know, his whole thing, like, well, uh, and how he came about working with the people in the army and stuff. It was just yeah. I wrote to him uh, yesterday. I, you know, I just said, this is amazing. I've known Jeff, you know, peripherally for many, many years and never knew what he did.
0: <laughs> well, isn't that funny? I think that's pretty common, actually, when we know somebody for so long. One of my best friends once told me, well, you can't be a prophet in your own town. And I think it's because we think we know people. And there's always some yeah. aspect of them that is a surprise to us, even 20, 30, 50 years later.
1: Yes, Hmm.
0: So um, I I let you know in the email that we exchanged about you being a guest on the podcast that I like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share something about themselves that most people wouldn't know about them, something that's not on their bio or their resume. And in your case, your Wikipedia page. (laughs) So what do you think? Do you have something to share with us?
1: Sure, I do. Yeah. Um, Well, there's many things, but The one that came to mind was that I don't think most people would know this about me. And that is that I spent my 18th birthday, which was in 1971, in Spearfish Canyon, South Dakota. (laughs) And it was the day before... Easter Sunday. It was my birthday's on April 10th. And that year, Easter was on April 11th. And sometimes it would fall on my birthday, you know, having a birthday in that place there. Um, and then so, I, but so my sister Maggie and I, we were on this tour. And we were teenagers, we had been hired to, to play at college campuses. And we stopped for the night in, you know, Spearfish Canyon. And that was my 18th birthday. And um, the next day, we went to Catholic Mass, we were raised Catholic. And that's the last time I've been to Easter Mass. (laughs) It was on
0: your 18th birthday, the day after.
1: Yes. So that's something most people probably would not know about me. (laughs) That's
0: great. Well, it sounds like you kind of have a vision in your head about that motel that you stayed in in Spearfish Canyon. What was that like?
1: Well, it was like, as you say, a motel. It was a, a, you know, um, you know, just a little, one of those, everything's on one floor type Mm -hmm. motel. I remember just, you know, We had never really been anywhere. Maggie and I got hired to go on tour around the country to college campuses. I was 17, she was 18, and that would have been my um, uh, senior year of high school, but we got this offer. We had this duo, the two of us, and we got this offer to go all over the country an agency out of New York sent people. So like, for example, the college in Missoula, you know, where we were on our way to, the college would sign up with this agency and the agency would um, send various acts and, and it was billed as like national acts are coming, you know, so once a month in the student union at the college, there would be an act that came from this agency in New York. So at the time, of course, there was no internet. There was no. Um, m- there was not much communication between someone in Montana and someone in New York City. You know, so so we were very exotic. You know, to be showing up playing in the in the student union uh-huh. from New York, but then the places we were going were very exotic to us because we had never been anywhere outside of the New York area. So traveling (laughs) across the West was just, I mean, that was so exciting. Mind blowing. The vistas
0: and the the nothingness between towns, miles and miles and not seeing anything.
1: And the breakfasts, I remember the breakfast would be different in Michigan as it would be in South Dakota or in Montana. Or then when you went down south, you'd have a different kind of a breakfast down there. You know, they'd have hash browns there, but they had home fries up in Montana, (laughs) you know. and But meanwhile, we never all of it was new to us.
0: Wow. So,
1: you know, I mean, you can imagine. And at one point, I remember, because we we did this for two years, you know, we were, and we would um, be out for like six weeks, and then we would be back home, and I would go to the high school and hand in my homework so that I could graduate. You know, I had to take wow. the exam. Of course. <laughs> you know. Um, but it was just the most amazing adventure, really. When I look back on it now, I think, wow. Because at one point, I was able to draw a picture for memory of the United States. All the states where they were. Wow. And, you know. From going back and forth, you know, and then realizing, wow, this state has a border with that state, has a border with that state. And just all the people that we met, you know, were so, um, it was so interesting just to see. The first place they sent us was a Fargo, North Dakota. Oh, dear. And we had never (laughs) never been outside of New York, you know.
0: Oh my gosh! Fargo.
1: And people, I remember we were like mesmerized with with the cowboy boots and the cowboy hats. We 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 thought, no, wait a minute—that's just in the movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like John Wayne just walked out of your your movie and into your life. Yeah. Wow. Right. So I I would love to come back. I have this vision of you going to some random little tiny Catholic. mass in in Spearfish Canyon, South Dakota. Like what, first of all, where, how would you find that? And what was it like walking in? I'm sure everybody was staring at you because Spearfish Canyon now is tiny. I can't imagine how much smaller it was in
1: 1971. Yeah, well, you know, we, we didn't really know where we were. We had a map and we were on our way to Missoula, Montana. And we were coming from, um, I believe, this particular leg of the tour, we were coming from um, South Carolina. Wow. Lumberton, South Carolina. And so this was like a – we had a big, long drive. And we used to love to drive these big, long drives, you know, So it, I, you know, it probably took us a week or whatever to get there, and so Spearfish Canyon was just the um, stop on the map when it came time to stop. You know, it's like, oh, let's we would, you know, I had the map. Maggie did all the driving, my sister, and I would, we would, I'd look and I'd say, well, how about this? Let's stop at, let's plan to stop at this place. So we, we had no idea. That's what hilarious.
0: So what was it yeah. like walking into that church for the very last time?
1: <laughs> it was Well, actually, that was not particularly intentional. I just looking back on it, I realized that that it was the last time that I went to Easter mass. But, um, you know, at that time, uh, it just seemed like a good thing to do, you know, like it was and it, it did it was nothing about the church that was that different, except for we'd never seen Easter mass where people had cowboy boots and cowboy hats. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was great. You know? Oh my gosh. It That just makes me
0: laugh because I, I remember when uh, we moved to Los Angeles from uh, Colorado. So we I was born in Washington, D.C., and then when my sister was born five years later, we were living in Northern Virginia, moved to Denver for a couple years, and didn't get highly involved with the Jewish community where we lived. But then we moved to L.A., and we got very involved in the synagogue that we went to there. And I remember going to the big high holy days, which is, they're in the fall, they're Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. For the Jewish people, these are like the Christmas and Easter, right? And I remember when we would go to these in Los Angeles, women were just dressed to the nines. they They'd This was the Easter Sunday for, for the Jewish people, and they would have these very fancy clothes on and everyone just dressed up. And then I remember moving to Colorado Springs where they had just one synagogue at the time, and it was a Reform synagogue, which is the least of the religious practicing. They still practice, but it's just less mm-hmm. rigid. Um, and there were people in jeans and T-shirts. And I was shocked. I remember thinking how weird that was that it was okay. And I'm looking at my mom like, I could have worn jeans because, <laughs> of course, she would made us dress up. And she just looked at me like, nope we will never wear jeans to the high holy day services, just so that, you know, <laughs> that's not ever going to be us. <laughs> but I remember being shocked by it as a, as a preteen seeing that. So you must've been beside yourself. Oh my gosh, cowboy hats in church.
1: Well, yeah, that that's not my biggest memory of spearfish. You know, interestingly, uh, about a year and a half ago, I did a gig in New York in a club, a solo gig in a, in a small club. And these people, there was sort of a, a bar at the back of the room, and these people were kind of sitting on the bar, about four people. And when the gig was over with, I went out and was talking to people in the audience, and I went up to them and I said, you know, hi, and, and where are you from? And they said, Spearfish South Dakota. No. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And you can imagine their surprise when I said, oh, yeah, Spearfish. I, I, I spent my I 18th know, birthday there. Oh, my gosh. Were they in cowboy yeah. hats in New York City? Um, They, they didn't. I don't think so. But um, they were in New York for a week, you know, and the guy – was a big fan of the roaches. And so he was saying to me that, um, you know, I guess he had heard I was playing in that little club. And so he asked me, "Would, would you consider coming out to Spearfish to play, you know? And I said, well, you know, I'm not really playing that much anymore. No, he said, I'll set the whole thing up and I'll promote it and I'll tell everybody in Spearfish who you are, you know? And I said, I don't think the roaches are a big name in Spearfish. <laughs> you know? uh, but, you know, Oh my
0: gosh. Such uh, a we novel. had a couple
1: of email exchanges, you know, about mm-hmm. that, but it never wound up happening.
0: <laughs> that is so funny. Well, of course, then we had 2020 thrown right into the middle of that, which changed a lot of things around the around the world. But wow, that's hilarious. I love small world stories like that. When when you have that very strange connection. And I think part of what I love about them is that they won't happen unless we ask the right questions. So Mm -hmm. the fact that you asked, Oh, where, where did you knew that they weren't from New York City? I mean, they stood out for sure. I know, I stand out. Being this Montana girl, when I go to big cities, I I know that I don't match what people usually see in the cities. So your effort to connect with them, to bring them in to the music more fully, which I know you mm-hmm. do, um, actually unlocked this beautiful small world story.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was really fun, you know, to to just kind of uh, you. I could see that they were completely surprised. That was the last thing they expected was that I would say I had been to Spearfish Canyon.
0: (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Wow. So
1: um, that actually leads me to
0: kind of take this in another direction because you traveled so much and you did these across the country trips for two years were there other small world stories that when you think about now, you, you those are the ones that pop into your head where you ran into somebody you knew or something interesting like that?
1: From, uh, the, from the touring around, you mean?
0: Well, just in general, I, I would think um, somebody who connects the way you do probably has mm-hmm. some really good small world stories. I know um, people who love people who are curious humans about other humans? They always have the best stories yeah. because they ask the best questions. And I can well, see something popped into I, your head.
1: Well, actually, um, uh, first of all, I'm a real storyteller. I mean, I like I, you know, I teach guitar at this point and songwriting, and um, you know, I, I constantly. There's, in trying to get a point across, uh, some musical point that someone's working on, there's always something that I can remember from my own experience, because, you know, I've had such a lot of years of doing music since I was 17, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's lots of stories. And I would have to say that, I'm not somebody that had the desire as a child to be a musician or a singer or a performer at all, you know? Mm. Like most of the people I know that were that are do this for a living, they talk about, "Oh my god, I wanted to be this when I was 6 or 7 or 9 or 10." <laughs> I did not. Um my sister, my sister Maggie and I, we learned to play the guitar off the TV. There was a TV show, How to Play Folk Guitar. And she immediately started writing her own songs. And so she would teach them to me. Now, this was, I was 11, she was 12. Wow. And, you know, and, and so she would sort of, and we were always bickering with each other. We were always fighting and, you know, but somehow she got me to um, do these songs with her. And the thing is she could sing harmonies. I couldn't sing harmonies. So she would te- I, she needed me to sing the melody, the melody and mm-hmm. play the guitar. So our very first gig was our dad took um, <laughs> one of the songs that we had learned off the TV and turned it into a, a campaign ditty for the local candidates because he had a friend who was part of the Democrat Democratic Club, and this was a Republican town, and, and my parents were Democrats in the middle of this Republican thing. So that was our first gig, you know. I was 12, Maggie was 13, and we had this uh, little three songs that we did at about the candidates, you know? So you um, changed
0: the lyrics to be about the candidates.
1: Yeah. You, you want me to play it for you? Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Hold on one second. I just have to get the guitar. Okay. Actually, do you know the song "The Midnight Special"? Yes, of course, absolutely. Right, you know, like the the Midnight Special, shine a light on me. So, my father he wrote these words. So, the guys that were running for the local council, there was a guy named Jules Adler, Bob Graham, and uh, Howard or Harold Ford. But they were the three guys, you know, local people in our town. So my father wrote these words. And we were invited to play, sing these songs at a fundraiser at the VFW Hall. Right. So that's (laughs) that was our first performance was was that. So it was like. Did you ever meet Adler? And Graham and Ford, they're running for council, and they won't be ignored. Say hello to Bob Graham, he's your kind of man. And when you see him on the council, you're going to be glad he ran. (laughs) That's as much as I remember. (sighs) Oh, my gosh. I
0: love that. I can't believe you remember that from so long. Well, I guess a Midnight Special, but the
1: lyrics. Wow. Well, well, the thing the thing is, Sarah, is that what happened was that there was a state senator at that. VFW show, and then he invited us to come and sing for his campaign. Right. So so then then the governor got wind of us oh with the God. campaign songs. And so, so we wound up being able to, you know, get out of school. They'd come and get us and they'd say, you know, the governor is doing a, an event, you know, at, in this town. And they'd like you to come and, uh, you know, sing the campaign wow. songs. <laughs> yeah. And that was like our first, first gigs, you know, so. And I must say, I think that between that and getting to go on tour and leave high school, I would say my main motivation for doing music at that point was that I got to get out of school and go (laughs) have these adventures, you know? Oh, I
0: hear you. I would definitely have taken that up as well. I was not a big fan of school.
1: Yeah, yeah. Where is Maggie? Whereas Maggie, on the other hand, she started writing songs. And our little repertoire that we had, she wrote all the songs. And she she was more like, she was really passionate about doing this. I was more like, you know, dragging your little sister along, you know. Sure, I'll
0: go if I don't have to go to school.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And also traveling around and meeting people and, you know, having these, uh, going to these places, exotic places like Montana. <laughs> so I have to ask, did you,
0: um, you said you bickered because siblings bicker, especially sisters. I mean, they just, they just do. My, my boys bickered when they were younger. But what was amazing was they would be bickering like crazy. It would be driving me up the wall. But as soon as we got in the car for a road trip, they were like tight they'd be sharing everything, they'd be polite to each other. It could be literally seconds before they get in the car and I'm hearing them, neep, neep, neep. then they get in the car. And Jacob, do you want to try this candy that I have? And uh, oh, I want to try this game that I'm playing. It was the weirdest thing. But when we traveled together, um, there mm-hmm. was some bickering at certain points. But in general, so what was it like with your sister? I mean, Did you, did you find some peace there or was it
1: constant friction? You mean when we were on the road? Yeah. Oh no, no, no. By then, by then, you know, I mean, I was 17, she was 18 and uh, we had moved into an apartment. We were subletting an apartment in the village that my father had a friend who was subletting his apartment for the summer and so we would go over, like, to the bitter end and, uh, over, you know, to right. the clubs. And that's play where Jeff said he saw what you at bitter call, end. Yeah. So that's where, um, we were discovered by this agency playing at the bitter end. And they came backstage and said, Oh, uh, we'd like to send you on tour. And I thought, well, you know, um, I have got a, go back and go to school, high school, and finish high school. And so I thought, well, nobody's going to let me do that, you know. But my father brought me down to the high school, and we met with the principal, and we met with all the teachers, and they worked this thing out that uh, I could do all my homework and take all the exams and, um, you know, go on this tour.
0: How did your mom feel about it?
1: She was more apprehensive because she felt that I was too young, you know. Um, and so, but by the time Maggie and I were doing this, now now all of a sudden we are launched out into the world. We, we were not bickering and fighting with each other then. It was almost like we got unusually close. Mm-hmm. You know, we became like... This unit really tight, right, really, really close, you know, um because we were traveling around as two girls, you know traveling all right. around by themselves, so we had to uh it was kind of like we didn't know anybody in these places we were going,
0: right, and for safety so we reasons had to alone
1: we had to get, right exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. So tell mm-hmm. me about
0: when, you, um, when you'd finished these tours and suddenly you'd be apart for a little while. Did that...
1: Apart?
0: Yeah, were you ever we're, apart we're, I mean, after the tours? Like, well, because you... Did you both go back to the apartment? Did you go back and live back home?
1: Well, well, at first, the first year of this, when I was supposedly in, in high school, um, we would go back to our parents' house. hmm The first year, you know, and then eventually we did move into the city and live in an apartment in the city, but we were always together. It wasn't like, okay, you go your separate ways. You know, we were just bonded in this way that I've never seen anything like it really, you know. Yeah, where is she now? My sister Maggie died in uh, 2017. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: I didn't even. have that in my notes wow yeah
1: but someone two years ago sent me a recording of the two of us just the two of us you know we went on to make a record that was produced by Paul Simon and he he took us under his wing and we created this record which is called seductive reasoning which is That's a record that um, has kind of a bit of a cult uh, following. And um, so someone sent me these recordings, live recordings, of what we were doing, the two of us. And I'm in the process of putting together a project to release the live recordings. But I've also gone back and interviewed about 19 different people who – Some of the people met us when we were on this tour. Um, Some of them worked with us on the record, seductive reasoning, you know. Wow. Um, We we did an interview with Paul Simon about how we wound up, you know, in his uh, circle there. Um, And so I'm looking for, we're, we're actually presenting this, making a proposal, presenting this project to audible because we would like to make it into a, a the like an audible book because these interviews are fascinating. This is this thing happened 50 years ago. So wow, you know, that's going to be amazing. Able, right? I was able to track down the person who met us at the airport in Fargo, North Dakota. Um A fellow named Lee Hantho, who went on to have a whole life, you know, everybody that we worked with and met during that time period, who went on to um, have a whole life, you know, but then there are younger people that were interviewed who were influenced by the record that we put out. Um, Like. Emily Saliers and of the Indigo Girls we I did an interview I with love Emily. Them. Um Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're amazing.
0: What a great way to honor your sister's memory and legacy. Wow. That's so wonderful. I can't wait to learn more about that as it comes to fruition. I'm I'm going to be one of the first to buy it for sure.
1: Yeah, I hope it happens, you know. I mean, it's one of those things where people have to respond and take an interest. I, I was amazed to hear these recordings, you know, and a friend of mine has done an amazing job of restoring them because they were live recording the sound quality. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I I'm like, I'm sitting here just thinking about what that's going to be and how amazing it'll be.
1: And and so, some of the recordings were actually done in the year 2000 because what we did was Maggie and I did a tour where we re- revisited these same songs. And it was amazing kind of remembering them, putting the arrangements back together, you know. So all of this music has never been released before. And there's there's about four or five songs that have never been released, but the actual recordings, live recordings, have never been released. You know, so oh.
0: so of all those songs, you know, when you think of a theme song for that time in your life, what is that theme song?
1: Well, actually, uh, there's a lot of them. I mean, if you you, you might want to listen to the record "Seductive Reasoning." Oh, I will. Um, there's some amazing songs on there. There's one called down the dream that Maggie wrote. Um, you, you get a flavor with that album. You, you sort of get a flavor of uh, us traveling around, you know, um, but in, in a weird way, I mean, I don't want to say too much about it because music okay. it's like a, like, there, I, I saw a great quote the other day, and it was by Martin Mull. It said, talking about music is like dancing about architects, architecture. <laughs> Martin
0: Mull, of course. Oh, great. Well, I, yeah. I have one more question for you that um, will probably bring this full circle in some way you started playing music kind of accidentally at 10, 11, 12 years old, yeah. accidentally fell into a tour at 17. When you think about the music that, that you listened to, not necessarily that you were writing or, or performing
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you think about a soundtrack for it, that's not your own music.
1: What is that? That would be the AM radio from the, uh, 60s, from the 1960s into the early 1970s or half of the 1970s, and also the singing in the choir in the Catholic school. Oh. I think that's where we learned how to hear harmonies and, and listen. Things. So
0: is mm-hmm. there a particular song that just popped into your head when you think about those, the AM radio?
1: Well, well, we we were really big Simon and Garfunkel fans, and we uh-huh. had such a thing about Simon and Garfunkel. And so the way that we met Paul Simon <clears throat> was that someone told us he was teaching a class at NYU, and Maggie went to the building where the class was, and when he walked into the building, she went up and introduced herself and he invited her to come back. You know, she said, "I have a group with my sister," and he invited her to come back with me. And uh, you know, we there we were both sitting as he came into the building again. And obviously, he he didn't seem to remember. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, I told these people to come back, and so he took us into a classroom. And we performed, you know, we played some of our songs and then he invited us to join the class. And that's how we met Paul. Wow. Your sister was a force.
0: She was a force. Yes. <laughs> she yeah, knew what she, she really wanted was. and she made things happen. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The whole I feel like our whole thing was she was like the engine. Um, I, you know, had really not a lot of ambition. If you had asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said, well, I want to be like work with animals. You know, I'd like to be a, a horse trainer or I'd like to be a veterinarian. You know, um, those were the kinds of things I thought. Uh, in my eight, In my eighth grade yearbook, you know, when they put what you want to be when you grow up. It says, you know, Terry Roach, politician. Oh, my goodness.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and then there you were performing for all these politicians. So you were definitely I influenced think, there.
1: Exactly. I, I, I was impressed with the governor and the senator and these people. And I thought I want to be a politician like them.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't see that in you at all. You're far too kind.
1: (laughs) Well, the world has, I mean, one thing I must say, just in closing, I guess, is that this experience of traveling around this country in 1970 and 71, I developed such a love for all of the different states. And I am heartbroken to see what today is like in terms of the divisiveness and the, and the my side and your side. And it's like that podcast that you did with the woman uh, who who made the movie about listening. I thought that was right on the money. You know, I haven't heard anyone change their mind in about six years about anything. And there's all this slinging of, I hate these people. I hate those people. And it's just heartbreaking to me because I remember traveling around this country and just being so charmed by, you know, going down South to Louisiana, West Virginia was a main place that we went, Wisconsin, you know, Montana, up in new England. And I just uh, developed a love for like all the States and the different ways that people were and the food and people were, we didn't, have any trouble from anybody you know
0: right. yeah it is heartbreaking well yeah. i'm hopeful that i'm hopeful i'm optimistic more than hopeful because hopeful you know indicates that i'm not doing anything i'm mm-hmm. optimistic that we will find ways to reconnect and maybe it's through music i know it's through food i love feeding people right and maybe it's through our yeah. stories, which is also a big part of mm-hmm. of your work and my work, and Jeff Furman's work. And um, yes,
1: exactly. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: Terry, I am so grateful for this time you're spending with me. I, I'm sitting here with this huge grin on my face for the last hour, and I, I'm I'm kind of I'm in awe at this point for all that you've experienced and the the heart with which you embrace what you do. So thank you for that and for spending
1: this time. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks for having me on and send me a link to your music. I would love to hear your band.
0: (laughs) I will definitely do that. Are you ready to start your story portfolio so you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. Is available in all the regular places. And the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change, in my living room in Montana. Also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review and let me know that you've done it so I can thank you properly. Thank you.